don't know if I can blame them. Um, well, this week, um, just a just a Justice Anthony Kennedy resigned from the Supreme Court, and one of the lines he's famous for writing is, "At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and the mystery of human life." I'll read that one more time because I think. Uh, it catches something. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. It's a lot of work for one person to define the concept of existence, well, done, of meaning, halfway done, of the universe, well, I haven't started that one yet, and of the mystery of human life, well, I'm working on that too. I mean, that's a lot to sort of handle there. And while Justice Kennedy might be right about, you know, as a, as a Supreme Court justice to say at the heart of liberty is these things, but as we walk through the book of Leviticus, part of what we're saying is at the heart of being called by God is it's actually for someone else and for some other institution and universe and person and being to define these things. So it's not up for us to sit in our rooms and come up with what the concept of existence might mean and be would be very boring if you left it up to me. Um, and, yet, and yet what we sort of say as, as the church is we're invited into a universe of meaning, of an institution, of a body, in which these things aren't so much as just defined for us, but given meaning and injected with life, which I think is different. You know, from a critical perspective, you could be like, well, it's nice that you guys have it all figured out, which is like, well, let me read for you Leviticus 9 and tell you how we don't have it quite all figured out. Um, but, but it invites us into this place injected with, with ways to which to already ponder and to think through these questions, to sort of be with them, to sort of say, what is the meaning? What is this within this sort of logic and universe that God has come and spoken to us? So I think it's an interesting sort of thing that that happened this week as we enter into the start of, of chapter 9, which is a shift in the book. The first thing I want to point out before we get too far is that, that Chris has made this awesome scroll. It looks like a scroll for our Summers of Torah series, and I think it's beautiful and amazing. And this is one of the best parts about it is uh, somebody this morning, I won't say who, was somebody who I've been married to for 12 years today, actually. Um, but, but Don said to Kelly as she was looking at it, he, he said, do you know what those words are? And she, Kelly, uh, is a very confident person. She's looking at me like, we'll talk about this later. Um, she's like, well, yeah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then Don goes, oh, that's pretty good, Kelly. And then I'm standing out there, and I just come in, and I'm like, wrong. Um, uh, it, that's, first off, now, I'm not, it, I don't know how Kelly was reading it, but you can imagine somebody else coming up and being like, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, which Hebrew you read the other way. So like you would be like more like Genesis if that's what you thought it was, right? Exodus, you would actually be shifting off this way, which is the first weird part about it. The second is that the, the Hebrew titles for these five books are the first words of the book. 
And so for Genesis, it's, it's uh, at the beginning. For Exodus, it's now these are the names. For Leviticus, as we've talked about, uh, Vaikra, which is Leviticus, now he called. Numbers in the wilderness and Deuteronomy, these are the words. Um, and so this sign is sort of there. It was great. It took me two summers to come up with this, but I told Chris we're at least using it for the rest of this summer, next summer, and the summer after this as we finish these books. Um, but this sign sort of calls us into this older relationship that sort of has answers to these questions that Justice Kennedy is talking about and brings us into Torah in a different way. Um, you know, so for Leviticus, Vayikra, we talked about this name that we call it really actually comes from the two sections we're going to talk about today, chapters 8 and 9, which deal with the priesthood, and then next Sunday we'll talk about 10, which deals with the priesthood as well. We say it's like the book about the priests, the, the Levites is what we would say. But for the Jews, it's now the Lord has spoken to them from the temple of meeting. God is providing a place for them. And so the title, I think, helps, because if you're an English speaker who knows that Leviticus might refer to the Levites, which not all of us do, you might just write it off as it's instructions for priests. Why would I read that book? But if you call it Vayikra, now the Lord called. Now you could translate it. Now the Lord continued calling. Now you're invited into a longer relationship and a longer sort of sphere of, of answering these questions. So Chris, thank you very much for doing that. And I think it looks wonderful. This is sort of where we are in the book up there. This, the, uh, the black box around it recurred when I hit one button. And I asked Kelly if I should fix it, and she said, would it take long? I said, well, no, but there's potential it blows everything up, and I'm frustrated. She said, don't do it then. Um, so we'll just deal with the black boxes around the outside today. But this is sort of like the chapters of the book of Leviticus, 1 through, through chapter 27, if you look at the top. Those are the chapters of the book of Leviticus. And then these sort of things listed beneath it, Ritual, priesthood, and purity are the content of the book of Leviticus in a lot of ways. And so 1 through 7, which we just sort of walked through together, we talked about five rituals. We talked about uh, a ritual of well-being, a peace offering, a burnt offering, and then two offerings for sort of trespasses and offenses and sins at the last time. And so we did 1 through 7 with that. And then through 8 through 10, we're going to be looking at what the priesthood is, and then 11 through 15, we'll look at um, the purity codes. 16 and 17 is this, this Day of Atonement thing that forms the center of the book. It's not one of these three images. And then the last half of the book is really sort of the holiness code, but it fills in much the same way that the first half of the book is. The last half of the book is, is sort of obsessed with this phrase that you will be holy as your Lord God is holy. But it will be tackled in sort of an outward circle from the first one. So, you know, you have purity and purity bookending the, the Day of Atonement. And then you have priesthood and priesthood bookending the purity laws. And then when we get to the end, we'll be back at sacrifice, which I'm sure you're all thrilled for. Um, and that's sort of the instructions for this, this sort of shape of this book and how it goes. And so that's sort of where we're going. And where we're at today is sort of in these, these two chapters. Carla just read eight. But chapters eight and nine. Now, one of the great parts about studying the book of Leviticus is the number of not just church fathers, but reformers, and even people who are writing commentaries on it today 
talk about how painful of a book it is. Now, the best one for this section was Calvin called these two chapters tedious. Um, you know, you think of these are pious, great people, and then they sit down and they're like, well, this is a tedious section of scripture. This is just playing things over again. And I think Calvin and Origen and all these people who rightfully point out that Leviticus is a challenging book, although you only need to tell your pastor's preaching on Leviticus to hear somebody tell you it's a challenging book. Um, but I think what, what we do is when we build in context and meaning, we begin to see larger things. And so what happened at the book, at the end of the book of Leviticus, was that God's spirit filled this temple. And what happens at the start of the book of Leviticus is almost like going back a little bit. Because these instructions about these sacrifices are what then they do. So we had the first seven chapters, which are instructions on these sacrifices. And then what happens in chapter 8 is they do first these sacrifices to concentrate, consecrate the priests. And there's, there's, it's, it's quite the description of the priest's outfit, but there's a picture. Um, and you can read chapter 8 and, and hear more about what's made up in this outfit. I'll make a comment about one or two things. But they do these things, these sacrifices, to sort of to make the priest holy. And then they do these sacrifices again in chapter 9, where Carl read for us, so that God's spirit will fill the temple. So the reason why this sort of plays out as a backwards move, those first seven chapters, is how do they know how to do these things? How did the, the God spirit come to reside in the temple? Well, Leviticus starts with this sort of some instructions that Moses was given by God to make this happen, to bring this about. Now, one of the things that, that, that I've had in the back of my mind as we've been going through this, um, in, ch in chapters 8 and 9 and 10 seem like a great point to point this out, is that there's a saying among some rabbis that they don't understand why Christians stumble around the book of Leviticus. Because really, the book of Leviticus is full of our religion. That we need sacrifices. We need something to intervene to open up the pathway to the divine. They look at everything we say about Jesus and his sacrifice and his blood and his life for us. And what they say is, isn't it amazing that they find this book such a struggle when all these sacrifices are exactly what they're saying about Jesus? that there should be a natural home for Christians in the book of Leviticus. And so what Carla read for us from chapter 9 about this sacrifice being put on top of this sacrifice, on top of this sacrifice, so that God's glory may reside in this tabernacle, is actually perhaps very natural for us. Except for now, as the passage Don read when, during worship it, from John, is that Jesus tabernacles among us in a different way. And he becomes our sacrifice. But there's, there's things here, if we really think about them, that intuitive sort of a larger movement about who we are as Christians, what it means to be a Christian. And so this image of this priest, by the way, should also call to mind to us for some things, too. Not that, not that we are, um, not that I, or I mean as Protestants, that we have priests, but that what First Peter says to us is that we are a nation of royal priests. And so these, these priests are actually a symbol for us as well. And so this great part in chapter 8 is that they're washed. Well, as Christians, washing should make us think of baptism as we become 
Christ's royal priests in the world. They're anointed with oil, which is a Christian ritual as well, for both baptism but also sickness and other things to sort of, to sort of call forth God's presence in these places. And they're, they're sort of called out among the people to be of service to them, which Christians may not be known for this, but that's what Christians are. It's what the, the Jews were supposed to be. were called out so that they could be a blessing to others. And so at the start of chapter 9, there's this phrase that, in, that probably should be translated, and it came to pass. Um, right at the start, after Aaron and his son spent seven days sort of in the front of the tabernacle. They're kind of in this space between belonging to the common lot and belonging to the people who can go into the temple at this time. And they wait there for seven days. And we'll, we'll, we'll quickly talk about the seven days, but there's a phrase, as it came to pass, and one of the things that the rabbis will say about this is that as it came to pass is almost always sorrow. It's almost always connected as a phrase in Hebrew to sorrow in the Old Testament. And so as, as Christian commentators and, and, and rabbis later think about this, they begin to say that, that what happens for this moment for Aaron is that he sees the world and its flawedness and woundedness. And that Aaron's job as a priest is going to bring the sorrows and the sighs and the sins of the people into the Holy of Holies. It's good news for us, but it's also a challenge. But I think there's, there's a conceptual imagination there for Christians. Can we be the ones who hear the sorrows and sighs of a weary world and then become the priests who bring those in? Now, this is, this is the, the 12 things the guy is wearing on his chest. They think we're there maybe to remind them of the 12 tribes of Israel. And what the priest does in the temple is he does his work silently. He's not supposed to really be talking. And yet these 12 sort of signs are him bringing the people and their requests before them. He brings them into the temple and tabernacle in a wordless way. We're a little bit quick with our words rather than, than seeing ourselves bringing them on our bodies. But there's this, there's this way in which the priest is one representing the people of God before God which is a challenge uh, for us to get, but there's, there's this ways in which they represent that for people. And so Aaron is one who's first sort of anointed for this task, and his sons are as well. And it says that there's blood sort of dabbed on his ear, on his hand, and on his foot. And the reminder there, and Christians, I think, can get something from this, is that he is to be ever attentive to the word of God hearing, He's supposed to be active and willing to use his hands to do the ministry of God in the world. And the feet have this sort of position of being willing to go, too. There are things that all sort of Christians sort of natively get a little bit more. And there's this, this, this Peter quote that I wanted to read that earlier in Exodus, and we're going to talk about Exodus a couple times today, is that in Exodus it says they're offered this chance to become a royal priesthood, a chosen people. And all the people agree to it. And then not like a little bit later, they build a golden calf and worship it, and that thing sort of comes tumbling down. And then God renews that covenant in sort of a grace that, that we talked about as almost like an Easter for us as well. God renews this by breaking through human stubbornness and hardness. 
But what seems to have faded is that they won't be a royal priesthood, but they will have a royal priesthood, these first, these first hearers of this. But what Peter reminds the church is that, but now you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. So chapter 8 is really defining for us in a lot of ways, what does it mean to be this royal priesthood that's been called out of darkness into God's wonderful light? Now, one of the things that, that, that this passage, let me think about the order I want to do this in. We'll talk about presence just for a second. The book of Exodus begins with, we don't know where God is. The people are in Egypt and they're slaves and the slavery tends to keep ramping up. And then there's a wonderful phrase, but then God heard the cry of the Israelites. God hears the cry of his people. And so it starts with, where is God? We don't quite know. And then at the end of chapter 1, I believe, God hears the cry of his people. But then the question sort of governing the whole book is, how is God going to be with his people after he rescues them? The second half of the book, at least. How is he going to reside with his people? And so that first happens at Sinai. This mountain that fire descends on, and the people see the presence of the Lord there. But there's a quick problem with Sinai in that way, is that these people are supposed to be on the move. They're supposed to go to a promised land. They're supposed to be in a different place. And so the problem becomes is that, how is this God going to travel with us? The tabernacle is a solution to that problem. It's almost like a mobile Sinai. Like, God is going to reside here now in the center of our camp as we move from this place to the promised land that God has for us. God is going to travel with us through this. And so there's this idea in which God has come to sort of reside with his people at the end of the book of Exodus. And so this ends not with absence, but with presence. And these scenes around God sort of residing with his people have this feeling of almost like a wedding ceremony amongst them. But one of the most fascinating parts about this is that there are some people who talk about how that what God is looking for at this moment is a body in the world. He's looking for a body to radiate what his goodness and truth, what his uh, concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and the mystery of human life might be. God is looking for people who can radiate that out into the world. And so what happens is, is that when he moves into the temple, it's that these people are called to be witnesses to that. And when we get to the end of the book of Leviticus, we'll walk through some, some things that have to do with the love of neighbor, to have to do with what foreigners are like when they reside among you, to have to do with intercessions for people, to have to do with justice practices of jubilee and shalom. Like, and so that these people, unlike Egypt, which is bound on dominance and slavery, are going to be a people of life so much so that when they take a day off, even the animals and the foreigners and the slaves among them take a day off. God's looking for a body to radiate his goodness and truth out into the world. And so that's sort of what's happening finally in this passage is God is taking up residency in the camp. Again, thinking of Don's reading, that God in Jesus becomes tabernacled among us. 
Eugene Peterson, the message, has this way of translating that phrase, that God moved into the neighborhood. Moved into the neighborhood of our lives. You lose some of the phrase tabernacle, but what you gain also is that for these hearers, God literally moves into the neighborhood of their camp in the wilderness and is going to reside there among his people to be for his people. And so we have this sort of movement happening here. And this brings us to this idea that this phrase that it was done according to the Lord occurs seven times in the book, or seven times in this, in this chapter. Um, and in these seven times, what sort of is happening is the priests come in and they are among the common lot. And what happens is by the end of it, they're a new creation. And there's this phrase that starts this chapter in on the eighth day. So if we think about creation back in the book of Genesis, there are seven days of creation. And on the seventh day, God blessed it holy as a Sabbath. So they've waited these seven days, and they come out on the eighth day as almost a new creation. They come out as a people of a new creation, called to do this work of interceding before God on the behalf of their people. That there's this creative pattern, and if we were at the end of the book of Exodus, by the way, there's this creative pattern in which God gives the instructions to Moses seven times. There's all these seven things going on around this temple, and it's almost like that this temple and God's presence with these people is going to radiate what God meant for creation before the fall. That they're going to radiate something true that isn't destroyed by what's happened that this presence for them is almost going to be like a hub of knowing what the world was like before things fell apart. That that's sort of the ways in which they're going to sort of move with this thing through the world. So God's presence comes and takes up this body before them and with them and dwells among them and with these priests who are going to intercede for them. And so this is, is this sort of movement in the book of Leviticus of God sort of taking up residency with us. And this shouldn't be a surprise to us because it's much similar to the thing he does with Jesus when he comes among us. He comes as one called to be a priest. He comes as one who administers for our sins. But he also comes as to sacrifice to remove that, to make us whole again to remind us of the original intent of creation. You know, we talked last time about sin being pollution. And what Jesus comes when he takes up residency in the world is he comes with one without sin, and so he moves through a polluted space without polluting himself. But, the, but as we talked about in the book of Mark and in the beginning of the new year, there's passages in, in Mark in the New Testament where it almost seems like he's, he's cleansing the world by his presence while he's there. It's not only that because as he's God among us that he doesn't pollute the world or that he can't get polluted by it, but by his touch and by his healing, by his restoring, he touches unclean people, which we'll get into the next part. They actually become clean. He's almost like, um, I mean, like you could say like OxyClean, which is a joke, but he's almost like this, um, this force that comes in the world and removes the stain on it. He removes which, that which has tarnished it and made it the way that it is. He removes the pollution from the world. 
There's one last thing I want to say for today, and it comes from the book of Hebrews. And this is a thought that I've been thinking about a lot, and I haven't quite come up with a way to say it because it's, it's fascinating to me and baffling. And so maybe it'll mean something to you, and you can say it a different way back to me, and then I can say it to everybody on Sunday, and I'll be like, I came up with this all by myself. Um, not exactly. I'll give you credit. Um, But in the book of Hebrews, it says that the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they have not stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. Those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for bulls or blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, God. First he said, sacrifices and offering, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when the priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he is made perfect forever, those who are being made holy." That nations of priest lines about being called out of darkness into light in this line. But the one, the one thing, and I think that it's a beautiful summary and, and thing to keep in mind as we study the book of Leviticus. But the one thing that always stands out for me is that burnt, therefore, when Christ came to the world, he said, and he's quoting Psalm 40, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. As we've been going through the book and the sacrifices and offering that line over and over again, but a body you prepared for me sticks with me. Sacrifices and offerings are broken up and offered, burned, um, some eaten, but, but they're all sort of used in this way. And then what, the, what Hebrew says is that the response is, but a body prepared for me. It's almost like the body becomes the sacrifices and offerings. That the body sort of comes and enters time and history. I mean, this is one of the strange parts about it is you could easily have a cosmic story of God up in heaven that never takes root in earth, right? You could have like God did at the divine temple and offered these sacrifices and fixed it all. But what actually the psalm in Hebrews is providing for us is that what happens in Christ, a body is prepared in and among the world to effect this reconciliation. And it's not... It, it seems tied to the sacrifices and offerings. This body that's the tabernacle from John that, that, that Don read for us, this body that rescues us out of darkness and brings us into light. That God offers himself as this body prepared for us. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy.
Let us pray.